today's calls of worship is in your pew bibles page 539 psalm 73 1 through 14 surely god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me my feet had almost slipped i had nearly lost my foothold for i envied and arrogant with when i saw the prosperity of wicked then had no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the common body burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, for close themselves with violence, for their callous hearts in <laughs> They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Today's Old Testament reading can be found on Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32, uh, page 33 on your pew Bible. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabuk. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and the human beings and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God's face, God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Today's New Testament reading can be found in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 12. And that is on the uh, page 1115 in your pew Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that is so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that marked, uh, uh, that marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as children? It says... My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. 
because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone and he he chastens everyone he accepts as his child endure hardship as discipline god is treating you as children for what children are not disciplined by their father if you are not disciplined and everyone and everyone undergoes discipline then you are not legitimate children at all moreover we have all had parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it how much more should we submit to our father, to the father of spirits and live our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best but god disciplines us for our good and that that we may share in his holiness no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful later on however it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees thank you youth good to be back with all of you today we um, woke up yesterday and went to print our boarding passes and couldn't find the email that you know they send you as a confirmation of having booked your flight so we checked one credit card for a receipt and couldn't find it. We checked another credit card for a receipt and couldn't find it. We checked Expedia account and couldn't find it. Checked the airlines, couldn't find it. Finally, we realized the unthinkable had occurred. We were in Seattle a day before we were scheduled to be here and had no return flight scheduled. So, even in vacation, there can be struggles. Even in good times and times away, there can be challenges and unanticipated things. And so, we're happy to present ourselves slightly poorer than we would have been otherwise, as last-minute flights are prone to be a few bucks more, but uh, nevertheless, uh, happy to be alive and whole and well and, and uh, here. As I say in my letter, our son is safely settled in Walla Walla, and we sincerely hope that he and all of our children, and I mean our collective children, uh, have a good year, that God is with them and keeps them, and that they are directed and safe and saved, and all of those wonderful things that I mentioned in my letter. It's uh, a little more sobering, this go-around. It was hard to leave him as a freshman at MBA, but we kind of knew we were four hours and 15 minutes at 85 miles an hour away from him. And uh, now we're 18 hours plus at 85, and you can't get past Oregon police at 85. So we're really 20, uh, 22 hours away. And that, that's a, many of you have been there before us. Congratulations. Surviving that, uh, we're just entering that phase, and many of you are behind us. So uh, that little flow of light continues I was struggling, there's that word, to figure out what to speak on today a couple of weeks ago before I left for vacation because clearly uh, when you're gone, you don't want to be working on the Sabbath service. You want to be gone. And uh, Travis was patiently waiting for my information and I finally just said, let's just talk about life as a struggle because it is and I'm finding it difficult to uh, think of another topic at the moment. So I won't, I won't cover all of the ways, and I'll try not to be pedantic. We all have life experience and know 
exactly uh, what it is that, that gets us from time to time. But I want to give a little spiritual overview, a little scriptural overview to encourage us to just know that uh, we're not alone, that we're not unique, that what's happening to us in this sense is um, not an aberration, that we're not being picked on by some cosmic conspiracy, uh, that uh, we just simply take a step and hope for the best as we uh, journey with God and with one another. And that's uh, where we stand. Our Old Testament scripture this morning, well, we had two. Our call to worship came from the psalm. And if you'll turn to Psalm 73, I want to reflect on that for just a moment with you. Because there's really one just extremely striking feature about what David notes in this. Well, two. We'll call it two sides of a a, a viewpoint, as it were. At the beginning of the passage, he's noting how he struggles. And then he compares himself to the wicked. Now, I don't know if you grew up with this phrase, cheaters never prosper. Anyone ever hear that? How many of you still believe it? (laughs) A couple of you still believe it. I think it's possible that if your hand was still up, you've either been through an IRS audit... No, I'm just teasing. Um, And lost? No. Um, What I'm trying to say is, we all know that the wicked do in fact prosper, don't they? Oh, good. I was really worried there for a minute. Um, Living in some sort of alternate space-time continuum for a moment that was uh, not connected to our reality. Yes! It's true. The wicked do prosper. And sometimes grandly. It's difficult to study even some of our more noble pioneers of industry. Um, and, and many of them were generous with charities and had many fine qualities about them. But uh, if you study them carefully, not all of them were kind. Not all of them shared their prosperity. Not all of them were decent to the people who worked for them. Not all of them were good to the environment or the earth. Not all of them were caretakers of anything but their own interests. And so people who didn't play fair, who weren't necessarily kind or good, definitely prospered and in huge ways. And the same is true today. Uh, David looks around him and says, why is it that the wicked prosper? They don't have any health problems. They stand tall. They have everything they need. Life is good for them. Why is this? And here I am seeking the Lord in his righteousness and I struggle. Did you hear that in the passage we read this morning? Could you relate to it? Don't you ever wonder? I'll tell you the story briefly. I probably told it some years ago, but many of you uh, are new enough not to have heard it. I lived in Hollywood for a period of time in Mara Salvatruca territory. That's a gang, in case you didn't know. One of the most violent in L.A. We lived between Santa Monica and Melrose and Wilton and Western in East Hollywood. 
We had um, an Armenian Brotherhood guy to our right. We had some El Salvadorians to our left, and it was unclear what their affiliation was. A Korean kid across the street whose parents thought he never did anything, but he had his own thing going too. And we were protected because we were homeboys. (laughs) We were from the hood. I kid you not, we went on vacation and our door came open while we were gone. It was open for three days and three nights. Our front door to the street opened to our house. Not a person entered it. Now that's God. I believe that's God's protection in our lives. But I also know that nobody was going to mess with us who wasn't from our hood and our own neighborhood wasn't going to mess with us. But we had this guy next to us named Harry. And it's a miracle I'm here before you and not incarcerated for murder, really. Because Harry had a habit of doing things like starting his boat and working on it outside of our bedroom like a foot outside our window at midnight or 1230. Uh, He was the kind of guy who brought a pit bull home when we had a little kid. Uh, He was... um, the type of guy who uh, was on parole but still had a pistol in the back of his uh, pants uh, half the time. If he didn't like what you said to him at 2 a.m. that, he'd get his friends and vomit all over your car so that the paint would get eroded. Um, he, he was not a good neighbor. He was not a nice guy. But while we were there struggling to try to make life work, we called it living in the rat hole because our house was a 1917 bungalow that needed refurbishing. And as we were refurbishing and restoring, it just took all of our money. Have you ever tried to redo an old house? They call them money pits for a reason. Um, It was the gift that just kept on giving. (laughs) But, But Harry, my neighbor, renovated his house and he didn't have a job. And his parents didn't have jobs. And his sister didn't have a job. And he had a Mercedes Benz. Not a small one, but one of the big ones. Oh, he had a job all right. It just mostly took place between 2 and 4 a.m. and involved passing various substances in exchange for money. How did the wicked prosper? Why is his life working for him? Why does he get to renovate his house? Why do things seem to be happening? Why does he have the Mercedes Benz while he's puking on my Volkswagen? (laughs) Am I not your servant, Lord? Why did the wicked prosper? Psalm 74, David eventually comes to a conclusion. You can agree with it or not. Psalm 70, did I say 74? I do this all the time for those of you who are new. You'll learn to speak Greg if you stick around long enough. If I say 74, I really could mean 64 or 73 for that matter. You just have to check your bulletin. I think we were in 73. Verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin, how suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So we have David coming around in this lament. Why do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem they have no troubles and I have all of these struggles? All of these problems. He comes to the conclusion that the Lord's judgment will sort it out at the end. 
And how different is your conclusion? Don't we kind of have a similar concept? Don't we believe that one day there will be accountability, there will be judgment, there will be all things made right, all things made new? So there's some comfort in that. But in the meantime, we can stand with David in the struggle. We can know that whatever our life is or whatever our choice is, good, bad, or otherwise, even my catastrophic choice to live in that neighborhood and purchase that house, God can redeem, God can bless, God can be with, God can, and God will ultimately judge. And God can save, too. Harry came around. He got married moved to a different neighborhood, got a job, had a family. We saw him, and he was talking about the people who used to be like him in a pejorative sense. was most intriguing. I'm glad I didn't do anything bad to Harry. I'm glad I'm not in prison and that I'm with you today. Is that too honest? Okay, good. I just totally unfiltered right there for a moment. Our next Old Testament passage goes beyond what David was talking about and actually precedes David by a bunch. And that's in Genesis where we have this marvelous story of Jacob. If you back up to the end of 29, I think it is, Jacob has this incredible, nope, it would be 28. Jacob has this amazing dream. While he's at Bethel. When he reached a certain place, verse 10, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I'm glad I have a better pillow than that. He had a dream in which he saw a stairwell, a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This incredible dream, this connection between earth and heaven, and angels going back and forth and the sacredness of this place is the precursor to what happens in our text today. Jacob has uh, met Esau or is preparing to meet Esau. He's met Laban who has pursued him also. He had left his homeland under uh, 
difficult circumstances, having deceived his father and stolen his brother's birthright. And now preparing to meet his brother again in all of the stress of that, having taken his wives and his children and sending them away from himself for safety, he's alone. A man alone. And how often does that feeling come to us even in a crowd? Have you ever been alone in a crowd? I know I have. Been alone in a in a family at times? Sure. Alone in your school life or alone in your work. We have this consciousness, this separateness, this awareness of ourselves, and at times we find ourselves isolated and alone. Sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes it's accidental. And in his loneness, Jacob wrestles. I'm going to say the story is definitely uh, something we can take literally as an event, something that happened to him. But I would encourage you also to look at this as metaphor. Because as Jacob wrestles with this unknown person, this man, this terror that has seized him in the night, this being, he doesn't give up. It's a struggle for his life in this moment of solitude. And as he is touched, it's an interesting use of the word there. He's touched and his hip is displaced. He knows he's dealing with somebody who's not really his equal. His attitude changes in this struggle. And he grasps a hold of this man and refuses to let go and says, I will not let go until you bless me. We don't even have a category for this in our culture. It's really a pity. It's really a pity. We have greetings. Hello, goodbye. We have statements of affection. Hey, precious, I love you, these kinds of things. But we don't have categories of blessing. We have categories of cursing. Right? And I don't need to share any of that with you. In fact, one of the funny parts, if you've ever seen this ancient movie with Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Sister Act, is she's just ready to say something to a former lover of hers, and all the nuns are just holding their breath because they're sure it's going to be something awful. And instead of something awful, she says, bless you. We're not used to that moment of surprise, that word We're used to the curse instead of the blessing. And Jacob says to this being, I will not let go until you bless me in this being, this man, as it's described in the text. This is, what's your name? Jacob. Well, it's not anymore. I'm going to give you a new name. 
just an aside, you realize all of us have been given new names whose names are written in the book of life. Names that are secret known only to God. And one day we hope will be revealed. I will give you a new name, the being says to Jacob. From now on you shall be known as Israel. For you have wrestled with God. Why do we struggle? We struggle in our loneliness, in our isolation, in our fear. We struggle against our pasts, our pasts and the things that we have done to others that have been wrong. We struggle with God and won't let go until we get the blessing, hopefully. And in all of this, Israel is a new name. It's a new identity. It will be the name of a people. And Jacob will also bless this place. And remember that he has been spared. That he's seen God and lived. So in the night when you are in your solitude and you're struggling, whether you've seen the vision of a pathway to God that you never understood before, or whether you're wrestling and tossing and turning with the demons that assault you or the God who would give you a new name. You're not alone. And He is there. And a blessing will follow. And you too will have your place where you have seen God and lived. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, this whole 11 is the chapter of the faithful. All these saints who've gone before who have done their thing. And the writer of Hebrews is evoking something very Roman. A Colosseum, perhaps. A place where Great gladiators of old are remembered, warriors of the past, their feats, or Olympians. Greek, we could go to the Greek. There's this huge cloud of witnesses, this great gathering of people assembled, the roar of the crowd evoked in this. Having endured, having gone forward, having, having managed... Let's throw off everything that hinders and entangles. Let's run with perseverance. So this idea of a race that we've heard before. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Listen to the argument here. Jesus is the founder or pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And here's this phrase. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, exalted. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why do we struggle? Why wouldn't we, if even the Master, the Creator, the Founder of our faith, and the Perfector of it, why wouldn't we struggle if He struggled? 
the author reminds us that we have not yet struggled or resisted to the point of shedding blood. And we've forgotten what the scripture says, this word of encouragement. Don't take light the Lord's discipline. And don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines you because he loves you and chastens you because you're his child. I've paraphrased there a bit. Endure hardship as a discipline for God is treating you as his own children. If he would suffer his own son to endure the cross, what would he allow to happen in our lives? If you're not disciplined, and everyone, I like how how this parenthetical statement applies to all. It's universal in the author's mind. It's not universal today. I know too many children who have no discipline, right? For what children are not disciplined by their father, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, it says, then you're not legitimate children at all. Moreover, we have parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Our parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. We live, friends, in the crucible that will shape our lives and characters through our choices and through our struggles. It isn't why or how, it's that we do and that we must. And then on the other side of it, there's a character that remains. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees Reference back to the Olympics or this contest. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Why do we struggle? How do we struggle? Here is this passage. Interestingly enough, the word for uh, chasten is to whip. So we're not talking about anything mild here. We're not talking about gentle rebuke. We're talking about old-fashioned discipline and parenthetically uh, that is not a note to encourage that type of corporeal work today on our young ones. Uh, that is simply to note what the passage is speaking of as we, as we look at, at the author writing about what shapes character and, and how we are. I want to end on a passage we haven't read. It's Ephesians 6. passage familiar to so many of you, put on the full armor of God and so forth. Let's let's start with that. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything and after you have done everything to stand. And it gives the armor of God, which I won't take time to go into. We forget 
We forget the context of our lives, not physically so much, but spiritually. That there is a larger battle for our earth, for our souls going on. That we partake of that daily. That our struggle really isn't against uh, the daily so much as it is against these principalities and powers of darkness. The devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. And it's not to be scary or weird. That's simply to suggest that there's a battle for your soul that is unseen. A battle for you. Spiritual battle for you. On the one hand, God would save you and restore you. On the other hand, Satan would destroy you, devour you, consume you, leave you with nothing. This is the framework that Paul is addressing us in when he says, put on this armor, be prepared for the contest. You'll need it. You'll need it. Why and how do we struggle? We struggle on this earth for all the reasons that life is hard. And as Scott M. Peck says, the sooner we accept that fact, the sooner we take a step toward mental health. Life is hard, and that's about becoming an adult and realizing that life is struggle. But we also mustn't forget the context of the larger struggle in which we find ourselves. There's a God who wants to claim you as his own, having created you, having loved you from the foundation of the world, having purchased you with a price, having endured the cross for the glory that was to come, having given all that you might live and live more abundantly, disciplining you, chastening you along the way that his character might be formed in you, his children. And ultimately, evoking a great cloud of witnesses to cheer you on as you cross the finish line. To be there when you receive your reward. To hear the Father say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And until then, we're in this struggle together. Walk in the way your Savior trod. Go forth with Him. Go forth with God. Amen.